One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Then Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, 
your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So a couple weeks ago, Wake talked about um, Jesus and his Jesus' mother and brothers coming looking for him, um, and Jesus responded to them, my, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And we're seeing that as a recurring theme now through Luke, that that same idea comes up multiple times. So the wise man who built his house on the rock was the one who heard Jesus' words and did them. And Luke says that the, the fruitful soil that produced the abundant crop, that was someone who hears the word and holds it fast with an honest and good heart and bears fruit with patience. And now we see Jesus' true family as those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And you'll remember a few years ago we did um, a study from David Platt on studying scripture. And he said, when you see a theme repeated over and over again, you need to pay attention to that, that God is really emphasizing us. He's calling us to take notice. And what follows this um, passage of, of Jesus' mother and brothers looking for him is in the whole remainder of Luke 8. It's a collection of stories of miracles, <clears throat> and they don't seem to be immediately linked to this account of Jesus' family. But Luke identifies them kind of as, as one day. It's not the next day. Luke usually identifies things time-wise, but he doesn't. He, he's not making a chronological link here. He just says one day. Um, and we know, I've said many, many times, Luke isn't just writing a random travel log. He's writing with a purpose. He said, so that we may know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. Or in other words, to confirm the truth of the gospel. And so I don't think it's just random that he puts this account of these miracles immediately after talking about <clears throat> those who hear his word and apply them being his true family. And as I study this for the sermon, I think Luke has a couple purposes in mind when he presents this collection of stories. And, and I'm lumping them all together. And Lake Wake will probably go through and preach for another three weeks on, on this. But anyway, uh, the, the, the key to, to give the punchline kind of right away, I think, how often do we ask ourselves or do other people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, how many times have you heard that? Why do bad things happen to good people? And from these stories, I think the answer is to bring them to the end of themselves and drive them to the feet of Jesus. In a sense, those bad things aren't really bad. Um, they're an expression of God's loving mercy to rescue people from a far worse situation, eternal separation from him. And, and the juxtaposition of, of these accounts next to Jesus's comments about his mother and brothers as being those who hear God's word and put it into practice make me wonder if if the bad things lead us to engage more fruitfully with the Savior. 
Are, are these pictures of what it takes to get the human heart to really embrace the word of God? And I think that the second purpose we see here is we see Jesus miraculously intervening in many different ways. So when we're pushed to that point where all our other options are exhausted, Jesus tends to be the one we go to as last resort, and yet we see his miraculous power that he's really the best one. He's really the one who can deal with those situations. So last week, Alistair Begg talked about the story of the disciples and Jesus and this storm on the Sea of Galilee. And, and you know, I, I think I'm going to revisit it a little bit. You know, they set out, the disciples set out really confident in their ability as seamen. I mean, they, they were experienced fishermen. They'd been on this lake all their lives. They knew that sudden storms came up. They knew how to handle them. They knew how to handle a boat. Um, so they got into the boat, and I think they likely told Jesus, why don't you just go over there and sit down and take a rest on the cushion? And, you know, you have the words of eternal life. We've got the boat. You know, you, you go sit down over there and let the experts handle this. And they didn't have any doubt in their ability as they got into the boat. And I think even as they saw the storm coming, it's like, it's just another storm. We know how to handle this. And so as the weather got, got rough, I think they tapped into their skills as seamen. They probably did the usual maneuvers that they would do, you know, head to the nearest land, reef the sails a little bit, reduce the sails, um, swing the bow into the wind so they're taking the waves over the bow and ultimately get the sails down and we're, we're just going to row for it. And they did all these things that they knew how to do and the water just kept piling into the boat. And... Uh, eventually it was too much, even for these experienced seamen. And they were convinced they were going to drown. And in their desperation, they finally came pleading to Jesus to rescue them. And the next story is an account of a demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes. And we don't know anything about the backstory of this guy, but I suspect he was a normal kid. We don't know things, when things went badly for him, but they clearly did. And Luke reports many times it seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Someone, and likely many people, maybe his family, maybe the neighbors, they tried to control this poor guy. Um, they tried to keep him from hurting himself. They tried to keep him from destroying others. Uh, they, they used chains and guards in their very best efforts. And Luke reports, for a long time, this man had worn no clothes or lived in a house, but lived in the tombs. And it appears after trying for a long time to restrain him, they just said, forget it. You know, let him run around naked in the cemetery. He's not bothering too many people out there. We've done all we can do. They were beyond their ability to touch him. Then we hear about Jarius, the, the synagogue leader. And... So he's a leader of the, the religious uh, practice of the day. He was undoubtedly someone that the community looked up to, and not just because he was religious, but he was identified as a leader, as a skilled person, as a person who was capable. Um, he had you know, a, a get-or-done kind of attitude towards things, and when he encountered a problem, he could fix them. Um, and I'm guessing because he was a religious leader, he was at least skeptical about Jesus and maybe even hostile to him. I suspect, you know, he was getting the messages from the leaders in Jerusalem of, hey, this guy is, is trouble, you know, watch out for him. 
Jesus was just an upstart teacher, and he was a trained theologian. Um, you know, so why even pay attention to Jesus? But when his daughter got sick, I think at first he probably did what you and I did. He probably, ah, she'll get better tomorrow. And then when she didn't, he started to become more and more concerned. He tried all the local remedies. He, he went and sought medical help. Um, but he exhausted all of those. And after having tried all those things, when it was apparent that she was about to die and then all earthly hope would be gone, he went to, to seek Jesus. And honestly, he actually waited too long because she was dead before they got back. And then interwoven into that story is the account of this nameless woman with an issue of blood, which means she had unceasing menstrual bleeding, likely. And we know very little about her backstory as well. But presumably, she was a capable woman, probably happily married, probably managing a household. And when her bleeding started, she probably assumed it was just normal bleeding and did the normal practices, which would have included declaring herself unclean and avoiding physical contact with others, including her husband. But when it didn't stop in the normal time frame, she started looking for help, started talking to friends and neighbors and doctors, and nothing helped. Luke just says that she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years and no one could help her. You have to remember, Luke is a physician, and I think that was professional courtesy. Um, he was covering for his physician friends, because Mark says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So I think Mark gives us the more accurate picture there than, than Luke of uh, what she had suffered. This is another desperate situation. Especially think about those days. A Jewish husband could divorce his wife if she displeased him in any way. Um, and if she was married, I suspect her husband left her years ago because she was perpetually unclean. She couldn't be with him. If she was following the law, she had to isolate herself from everybody, essentially like a leper, um, because she was unclean. So she couldn't work. She exhausted her money, her savings on medical help, and her presence in the crowd just shows how desperate she was. If she was recognized as an unclean person, um, she could have been stoned. Um, so she comes in and tries to secretly touch Jesus and slip away. I think all of these accounts describe people who came to Jesus in a state of utter desperation. The disciples were in a storm that was beyond their ability to control, even though they were experienced seamen. They feared for their lives. The demon-possessed man couldn't be controlled by any human means. Jairus's daughter was dead. Um, the woman with the issue of blood had spent everything she had to no avail. All those people had one choice left, and they knew it, and that was to cry out to Jesus. So I, I don't know why we wait until all our options are exhausted to come to Jesus, but I think it's often the case that it's our pride. Uh, we don't want to admit that we're not self-sufficient, um, that we don't have what it takes, that we aren't in control. I mean, the disciples had Jesus physically there with them in the boat the whole time. They could have asked him for help at any time, but I'm sure Peter was saying, don't bother the master, we've got this, until finally it was clear that they didn't have this and that they were going to die if Jesus didn't save them. And I suspect similarly, Jairus heard about, sorry, I have 
two different ways of pronouncing his name, and I'll probably pronounce them both. Of Jairus or Jairus. Anyway, um, I, I'm sure he'd heard about Jesus, and I think as soon as his daughter got sick, he could have gone to him, but he had other options, and besides this Jesus, you know, he was no different than the other fake messiahs that had come along and you know if, if the guys in Jerusalem heard that he was reaching out to Jesus it would have been bad news I've rarely been in as desperate straits as, as these guys were but I find that I too am slow to bring my needs and desires to Jesus I'm quick to think that I can handle it myself that I can rely on myself I remember a time about 10 years ago where I distinctly remember really feeling like I had life under control. I, I had a really good job, um, enough money in savings, I was in good physical shape, and you know, if worse come to worse, our property and our house are relatively self-sufficient. We've got you know, land to feed the family and animals. I thought, you know, I can handle anything that life sends my way. And that's what I thought. And literally within a couple days after thinking that, I had a really bad bout of, of vertigo that left me, you know, clinging to the walls just to stand up. I couldn't work. I couldn't care for my family. Um, and just learned really quickly how helpless I am if the Lord doesn't give me grace, you know. And, and that's the way we all are, but, but we think we're not. Um, as human beings, we... we think of our greatness, but we're, we're kind of like sand. Um, last week we were at the Atlantic Ocean with, with the family, and the hole that Samuel is standing in there actually started out to be kind of an island with a moat all the way around it. And we were trying to get the water, get water all the way around it. We literally had three adults digging as fast as we could, and we got water all the way around it probably twice for about two seconds at a time before something caved in and, and built a land bridge. So our, our human strength is kind of like that. It, it's really tenuous. No matter how hard we work, it's fleeting at best. Um, it can be taken away in an instant. But, but we deceive ourselves. And rather than acknowledging how desperately we need Jesus, we, we think we can handle it on our own. We're kind of happy to have Jesus as an accessory to our lives, as an add-on. Um, we might say he's Lord. Just the disciples called him Lord as they got in the boat. Um, but like the disciples, we really think that we can manage the seas of life ourselves. Um, we're happy to let Jesus sleep in the back of the boat because we've got it under control. We're happy to let Jesus be that interesting teacher out there until our daughter is dying until the doctor says there's, there's nothing more he can do. And it's at those points of desperation that our frailty is exposed, that we come to Jesus humble and broken and really ready to hear his words and do them. <clears throat> With his daughter dying, Jarius realized that he desperately needed Jesus and urgently went looking for him. He found Jesus in the middle of a crowd, which wasn't surprising. Jesus was always in the middle of a crowd at that point in his ministry, it seemed. And somehow he got through the crowd to get to Jesus, maybe because he was a synagogue leader, they let him through. We don't know. But this important man, this leader in the community, fell on his face in front of Jesus um, to plead for him to heal his daughter. And amazingly to me, Jesus dropped everything and went with him. I mean, d does that shock you? 
I think it should. I mean, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. We don't know how big it was, but Luke says that they are practically crushing him. So presumably he was having a productive teaching ministry there. He was impacting lives. He was probably healing people because he always was. But Jesus dropped everything because of Jairus' despair. And I think Jesus left the crowd to care for that one desperate man because he saw he was at a place to really do business with Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us exactly why he chose to go, why, why Jesus chose to go with Jairus, but I think there's a couple of lessons that can be drawn here. One is Jesus relates to us as individuals, not one meaningless person in a huge crowd. In the middle of the crowd, Jesus heard the desperate cry of Jairus, and he walked side by side with him to his house. And then in the midst of that same crowd, with people jostling him on all sides, he noticed this unnamed woman's delicate touch on the hem of his garment. It's something we wouldn't even feel, but Jesus heard and felt that faintest cry for help. He knows you intimately. He knows me intimately. He knows the details about you that you don't even know yourselves. And he wants to have a one-on-one relationship with us. He may have millions of followers around the world and great throngs of children around his heavenly throne, but he relates to each of us individually and intimately. The problem isn't on his end. The problem is on our end. We're often too busy doing life and too eager to show that we can handle life by ourselves to draw close to him. He knows us intimately, but he has to, often has to bring us to the end of ourselves to the point where we really rely on him and get to know him. Which kind of gets to the second lesson. I suspect that J- Jesus saw that Jairus was, was really ready to do business spiritually in a way that the crowds weren't. And Jesus happily left the crowds to engage with that one soft heart. And as they were going to Jairus's house, in the midst of the huge crowd almost crushing, crushing him, Jesus noticed again that, that faint touch of the woman with the, healing, with the bleeding problem. Lots of people were touching him, but not the way that woman touched him. She touched him in her desperation. And she was ready to do business spiritually too. So Jesus dropped everything, even his journey to Jairus' house to care for her, not to heal her because she was already healed and she knew it. When Jesus called her out, Luke says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So this woman was so used to being unclean that she didn't even dare uh, be in the crowd. She was so fearful that she might be stoned if she was known. She just wanted to touch Jesus and get away, just slip away into the crowd. But Jesus loved her too much to let that happen. He knew that she was not just another person in the crowd looking for a miracle from Jesus. She was a person who desperately needed him, a person whose soil was ready to receive the seed of the word. And you might ask, well, is that really different than the rest of the crowd? Weren't they all seeking Jesus? Weren't they all looking for something from him? And sadly, I think that, yes, there is a difference between these people and the crowd. And and maybe the story of the demon-possessed man shows that best. 
Jesus commanded the demons to leave him, and they went into a herd of pigs that ran into the lake and drowned. And Luke says, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in town and, and in the countryside, and people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people in the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The woman with the issue of blood was healed in the middle of a crowd. In the case of the demoniac, the crowd gathered after the miracle. People heard the story and they came running to the scene. And after they saw what had happened, they asked Jesus to leave. And I've often read that and thought, well, it was the farmers who were angry that their pigs drowned. But that's not what Luke says. There's a crowd of people from town, from the countryside. Most of them didn't have any financial interest in the, in the pigs. Um, the pigs aren't even mentioned again. Luke says they were responding in fear because of the, the formerly demon-possessed man was clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. So they observed an awesome miracle, the miraculous power of Jesus, that he was able to do what they'd been unable to do for years, to bring deliverance and peace to this poor, tormented man, no one doubted the miracle. There's no account of people saying, ah, you're doing it by the power of Satan, like other people said. They seemed to acknowledge that this was an act of God, but they asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. They weren't fearful of this demon-possessed man who was running around destroying things, who was uncontrollable, but they were fearful of the loving power of God manifest in Jesus. Although that power was available to them to address their deepest needs as well, they weren't desperate. They still had options. So they preferred to send Jesus on his way and continue to live in their illusion of self-sufficiency and independence rather than acknowledge their need for a Savior and a Lord. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, he was a spiritually interested guy. He had studied the scripture. He said he had kept the law perfectly, which we know he didn't do, but he, he, he certainly was trying. And Matthew reports, Jesus said to him, if you be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So is God opposed to wealth? I don't think so. I mean, the descriptions of heaven sound like lavishly uh, wealthy riches, um, you know, streets paved with gold and, and gates made of giant pearls and, and feasts and beauty beyond compare. But the problem with riches is they give us the illusion that we're self-sufficient, that we have options, that we don't need Jesus, that we can have Jesus as an add-on to our otherwise good life rather than desperately seeking him as the only source of life without whom we would perish. So Matthew reports of an interaction that Jesus had with the crowd after he, he fed the 5,000, where Jesus introduced himself as the bread of life, as, as the source of life. 
and I'll tell you, I, I did cherry pick verses here. You can go read it for yourselves and see if I if I did it accurately. But Jesus said to the crowd that was following him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Jesus called the crowd out. He said, you're looking for me to be an add-on to your otherwise good life. You like the free food. Um, you like the wow of the miracles. But Jesus encourages them to seek something different, to seek eternal life from him, the Son of God. He's lovingly and freely offering that life to them. And he goes on to tell them what, how that eternal life is obtained. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and truth. So true life, eternal life, comes from abiding in Jesus, from eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And you know, I think that's in the sense that a vine, a branch on a vine, feeds on the sap and, and the strength of, of the trunk that it's attached to and the roots that it's attached to. Life comes from being intimately connected to Jesus and reliant on him. He says that our flesh, that human flesh, is no help at all. <clears throat> all of our independence, all of our self-sufficient um, fleshly efforts are no help. Flesh plus a side of Jesus is a recipe for spiritual, for spiritual death. Eternal life comes by walking by the Spirit and abiding in the Lord completely. And that was Jesus' message to the crowd. And Matthew tells us how the crowd responded. After that, many of his disciples, not just random people, but people who identified as his disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Again, the crowd, which included disciples, walked away when Jesus called them to a deeper relationship with him, to more deeply rely on him. They apparently had other options and chose to pursue them. But Peter expressed the sentiment to the, the disciples who stayed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think it's that same kind of desperation that sent the disciples in the storm-tossed boat, that, that same desperation that led Jarius to seek Jesus to heal his daughter, and the same desperation that brought the woman with the issue of blood to Jesus' feet. It's a recognition that Jesus is our only hope. <clears throat> There's a concept in sailing of the port of last resort, which is kind of an undesirable place to weather a storm, but at least we can get there and at least we can get some protection and we'll survive. Um, you know, it's the worst of the possible options, but it's an option. In medicine, it's, it's that treatment that has nasty side effects, um, but gives you some hope uh, that, 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 that you could recover. That chemotherapy treatment when cancer is hopeless so although Jesus is often the last one we turn to when there's no op other options, he's not that port of last resort. He's not the miserable place to be. It's only our stubborn pride and our spiritual blindness that leads us to turn to him last. Again, in this collection of stories, I think Luke is also pointing to Jesus' miraculous ability to intervene 
regardless of what aspect of creation we're fighting with. Jesus calmed the raging storm in, in the story of the disciples. So he's the Lord of the physical world. There's no physical circumstance, earthquakes, tornadoes, storms that he can't control. Jesus delivered the demon-possessed man. So the spiritual world, Satan and all the demons, bow to his command. Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood. There's no physical sickness that he can't address. And Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. So he's master even over death. In this last portion of Luke 8, Luke provides, it's essentially a catalog of the kinds of forces that are beyond human ability to alter and shows that none of them are outside of the control of the Lord. They don't even get him worried. He doesn't even break a sweat in dealing with these. It's not even a struggle. In each of these examples, Jesus lovingly and gently cared for the people who turned to him in desperation. He, he doesn't make them grovel. He doesn't lord it over them. The closest thing to a scolding is what he said to his disciples of where is your faith, which I think was really more of a diagnostic question, a chance for them to self-reflect and rather than a rebuke. I mean, he knew their faith needed to be challenged, which is why he allowed the circumstances in the first place. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I think that exhortation in, in James, which is really so contrary to our nature, our natural response, it actually makes a lot of sense in this context. The trials of our faith reveal to us what we're really relying on. They expose if we're trusting something other than Jesus, and they show the inadequacy of our, our, of our flesh. Out of trials, like the storm that the disciples faced, that overwhelmed their skill and resources that we might think we have, that drive us to crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, if you don't do something, we perish. Those are the things that drive us to him. In my experience, most of my trials don't get instantly resolved, unlike the storm that the disciples were in. But if we persevere, we do persevere in those things, knowing that Jesus loves us, knowing that he's in control. We persevere because in our hearts we cry out the way Peter did, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You love us in so many ways, Lord. And we can't deny uh, your power. Lord, you are Lord of all. Uh, yet we are so slow to turn towards you. Lord, may our hearts cry be... Where else should, can we go? You have the words of eternal life. May we be quick to come to you, recognizing that you are our only hope. You are our shelter in the storm. You are our rock. Um, you are the one who heals and delivers us and, and gives us grace for the day. In Jesus' name, amen.